Well, this morning is our third week in our series on emotions entitled Life is Stressing Me Out. This morning, our topic is anxiety. So I think something that we can all probably relate with. I certainly do. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 20% of all Americans, so to give you a number, that's about 66.5 million Americans, suffer from some kind of anxiety disorder in their lives. 30% of Americans, so 99.5 million Americans, will at some point in their lives experience some kind of panic or anxiety disorder. Those are big numbers, 66, 99 and a half million. So let me kind of personalize that. If I use those same statistics to talk about our congregation, that means 165 of you right now in our church struggles with some kind of anxiety disorder. And according to those statistics, 200 people from our church in their lifetime, maybe you or first hour, maybe you're thinking it's not us, it's the second hour, right, or whatever, uh, will suffer some kind of anxiety disorder. In his book... The Progress Paradox, I love the subtitle of it, How Life Gets Better But People Feel Worse, Greg Easterbrook writes this, just over the past years, just over the past few years, diagnoses of major depression have skyrocketed, rising 33% from 2013 to 2016 alone, as have the number of people who describe themselves as chronically lonely. The percentage of Americans who experience stress, anxiety disorders, or or just elevated anxiety is 20 points higher than the global average. All while life has been getting better for the average American by almost every available metric. He writes, if you sat down with a pencil and graph paper to chart the trends of American and European life since the end of World War II, you'd do a lot of drawing that was pointed up. Per capita income, real income, longevity, home size, cars per driver, vacations taken annually, highest degree earned IQ scores, just about every objective indicator of social welfare has trended upward on a pretty much uninterrupted basis since the end of World War II. But your graph would lose its skyward direction when the topics turn to the inner self, the inner life, subjective well-being. The trend line would cascade downward like a water over falls when it comes to issues like uh, depression and chronic anxiety. The trend lines are off the charts, he says, just in the other direction. Americans and Europeans have ever more of everything except happiness. The British philosopher, I think I had to redeem myself because last week I started with a quote from Adam Sandler. So the British philosopher John Locke said something very insightful. What worries you, masters you. Very insightful. What worries you, masters you. And and if that is true, these next statistics are very revealing. According to a Newsweek article that came out just a few years years ago, millennials, so those of you from 27 to 42, are the most anxious generation on record. Debt. Declining home ownership, lower employment rates are partly to blame. Yet, according to the Geriatric Mental Health Foundation, they note that that common fears about aging is leading to high levels of anxiety for the boomer population. So that's those of you who are 58 to 76 and above in our congregation. But not to be left out, those of us in the middle, Generation X, of which I'm a part of, so 43 to up to 57, The stress of financially caring for growing children and taking care of our aging parents leads to anxiety, depression, and reduced overall health. So again, us guys in the middle are caring for you younger people as well as you older people, right? Gen X, can I get an amen? 
The point is, we're all stressed, every single one of us. We're all feeling some kind of anxiety. And while every generation has its unique stressors, all of this is going on with the background of financial stress. As we know, 78% of families live paycheck to paycheck. 71% of those families have some disproportionate amounts of debt. So you can sign up for our Financial Peace University, right? It's very important. But not to be outdone in America, we are optimists, right? So apparently a rising boutique industry based on anxiety consumerism has grown up. You all remember these fancy things, the fidget spinners, right? Products come out to help resolve our nervousness, to help us calm down, soothe our, our restless nerves, fidget spinners, weighted blankets, uh, bath salts, and now my favorite, essential oils like this bottle I have of chill pill. You just kind of spray it and you breathe it in. No joke, chill pill. You can all have some. Helps. Whoops. So, I'm so anxious, I can't even hold my fidget spinner. All these things in our weighted blankets make us feel so good because our nerves are so restless. No joke, it's not just us. I was at a pet store the other day, yesterday with my wife and daughter. Apparently our dogs are anxious too because now we have hemp lace CBD dog treats because they're so anxious because we're so anxious, we need to give them something to help calm them down. And I stood in the store while my wife and daughter walked away from me because they knew this was coming up. And I was like, dogs, come on, this is us projecting. And she was dead set about how our dogs are full of all kinds of anxiety and they need this help. So give them them hemp treats. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox there. My point is, what does all of this mean? It's pretty obvious. We are in the midst of an anxiety epidemic. I may joke about it, treat it a little bit light, but the reality is it's real. My goal this morning in the next 40 minutes or so is actually pretty modest. There is just no way we can deal with the topic of anxiety in all of its spectrum from free-floating anxiety to situational anxiety, anticipatory anxiety. All of those things are real, but we can't deal with all of them. So my goal is pretty modest. I want to talk about the kind of the core. I want to put a stone in your shoe to think about maybe from a, different, a biblical perspective of what is anxiety, right? And so there's going to be a lot I don't get to today because my goal is modest. I just want us to think a little differently, a biblical worldview perhaps, on a topic that we're just breathing in all the time, but often from not a biblical perspective. What I'm hoping to do is whet your appetite for a couple of books. Again, I just re recommend these books to you. I have them in the book spot. Again, don't buy them this morning. Leave them here until at least next week that fill out a better frame, a theology of anxiety, so to speak. I really want to recommend to you uh, Ed Welch's Running Scared. Ed is a neurologist and does a great job on building a theology of anxiety from a biblical perspective. This morning, what I want to do, like I did last week, is ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is anxiety? Number two, why do we get anxious? And then number three, what can we do about it? Okay. And like I said last week, I will try to answer each question in itself, but each question is building a larger understanding. So really, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is when we conclude all three questions. Each question self-contained, but it will build on each other. So let's start with the first question. What is anxiety? And I want to offer you, I want to begin by offering you four definitions of anxiety. Not because we're not agreed upon what anxiety is, but because anxiety has 
so many dimensions to it that each of it needs to be understood in relation to the other, but because they're so broad, one definition would just be too much. For example, in distinction from fear, oftentimes people associate anxiety and fear, but they're actually two different things. Fear is more of an acute reality that has an object. Anxiety doesn't necessarily have a definite object. It's more of a diffused fear. Like, I'm afraid of going to the dentist, right, as an example. And I'm afraid because no matter how much they shake my cheek, that needle hurts when it goes in. And I don't like that, and I'm afraid. That's an example of fear. Anxiety, however, might be something more along the lines of the gnawing feeling I get and, and wondering why the office staff and the dentist himself ignored me the whole time I was there. You see, a fear goes away when the object itself is done with, but the anxiety lingers with you about what that meant, which is why you can have a fear, but you are anxious. So anxiety and fear are related, but they're very different, which is why we need to have a couple definitions to understand it in its scope. So here's the first definition. And just to let you know, the four definitions, the first two are kind of clinical and academic, and then the other two will get more down to where you and I live. So the first definition comes from a world-renowned psychiatrist, Rollo May, in his groundbreaking book, The Meaning of Anxiety. And he, he defines anxiety as the apprehension cued off by a threat to some value that the individual holds essential to their existence as a personality. Well, that is a mouthful. Okay, what is he getting at here? Basically, what May is saying is that something, someone, some situation triggers you. It triggers you because it threatens to take away something in your life you need to survive. So in other words, the trigger is the apprehension that you feel, right? The, 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 the need that you have is the value that you hold on to, and your survival is what he calls your existence as a personality. Think of it just as your subjective well-being, your sense of self. So let me illustrate kind of what May is saying. I'll give you a concrete example. You get anxious because your money is running out, and you will be broke soon. You live, you're one of those 78% who live paycheck to paycheck, and the 71 that has all this debt. So the value there that's being threatened is provision. The threat is the lack of money, and your existence as a personality, your self-identity, your, your subjective sense of self-well-being uh, is your ability to provide a certain lifestyle for your family. And this lack of money is threatening that, and so you are anxious. On a more abstract illustration, I talked about the dentists. Uh, the dentists and their coworkers ignored me the value being threatened is I want to be accepted. The threat is the silence. My existence as a personality is that I need to feel accepted to justify my worth. And you accept me when you engage me and you talk to me, but when you give me this cold shoulder, that silence is threatening because my value is based on the fact that you accept me. And when I face that silence, I feel weird. You kind of get the idea. Here's a second definition that kind of teases out a little bit more. Anxiety is something that is out of control, and that something combined with the lack of control worries you because it threatens your being. See, the illusion of control lurks in our anxiety, doesn't it? The, the illusion of control, it just, it's there in our anxiety. See, anxiety, uh, anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. 
when you can't control something, you worry about it. That's how those two relate. And so this definition is similar to the first, except I like it throws in there this, this concept of control, that we want to have control. So it can be concrete, right? Something's happening, and you don't feel like you have control about it, so you worry, you get anxious about it. An upcoming test, a job interview, driving on the freeway, delivering that speech at your friend's upcoming wedding, the lump that was discovered at your last physical concerns you. It can be something abstract as well, an uncertain future, people's thoughts about you, the polarization of society, the impending climate doom, your family. So it can be something very concrete that you can kind of focus on, this test that I got coming up or this speech that I got to make, or it's just this sense of something's happening and I can't control it, and that lack of control causes anxiety because anxiety gives us the illusion that we can control things, and when I can't control it, I get worried about it. Now, let me give you a third definition. They're all building on itself, but I think this one's going to start becoming more practical, the way we tend to think about it. Worry and fear have a baby, and it's called anxiety, okay? Now, I don't mean here regular worry that we might call concern. Remember, I talked the very first Sunday on this series, or at some point, I talked about words have a range of meaning, right? I'm not talking about regular worry that we might just call concern. I'm not talking about regular fear that we might just call caution. I'm talking about sinful worry that functionally says to you, God is not in control, so you better be. And, and, and sinful fear that is saying, God is not good, you are on your own. When that kind of worry and that kind of fear come together too closely, the result is always going to be a sinful aspect of that anxiety. Because you live in a world where God is not in control, so you need to be, and God is not good, so you're on your own, and you get anxious because you know you can't control it. Fourth de definition, final definition, unbelief. What I mean by that is the practical, functional denial that you have either a sovereign or a good God. Now, the reason these four definitions were important was to illustrate there is a whole wide spectrum to anxiety here, and it ranges from the normal and appropriate to the sinful and unhealthy. Now, I want to point out here, now, when it comes to anxiety, there is, when it comes to our anxieties, our fears, our worry, there is a subtle danger because those characteristics are not blatantly ugly like anger can be. And so it can wear a mask a guy, under the guise of, I'm just concerned, I just have some caution. And cover up what actually is happening in your heart is a kind of sinful unbelief. Friends, if we're going to grapple honestly with a lot of these kinds of emotional issues that are taking our culture by storm, we have to realize while there can be legitimate caution and concern that's good and healthy, we also have to be honest enough to say, some of my anxiety is sinful because it's rooted in unbelief. Now, the reason I'm taking time to unpack that, and that might even seem harsh, is because remember week one, I talked about there's the rationalist view of emotions, and then the emotionalist view of emotions. And the emotionalist view says, how can any feeling I have be wrong because I just feel it? And so to hear that my, my worry or my fear is sinful sounds like just condemnation. Well, that's because you have, uh, and we talked about the two views of emotion, the non-cognitive view that views our emotions of just 
evolutionary biological holdovers. They're just in our physiology, and you experience them, you can't control them, that's what it is. And we realize that that's not correct. A cognitive view of emotion says our emotions, our feelings, our affections are rooted and based in beliefs, in the value systems, and a framework of thought and standards and evaluations. And so to say that my anxiety actually may be a result of unbelief and it's sinful makes a whole lot of sense. If my emotions and affections and, and feelings are the result of what I actually believe, what I actually value, and the kind of intellectual framework my life is built upon, there is room for that reality, and we have to be honest with that. So that is anxiety. Whatever definition you want to use, they all get at a little different element of it. Well, an important question we follow up with is, then why do we get anxious? First, let me say this. Because we, we get anxious because there is an actual creational aspect of it that's good. In other words, at, God, at creation, God built into us this wonderful thing called anxiety. Because anxiety is the emotion that keeps us vigilant. It keeps us alert. It keeps us on, on task. It keeps us on target. And it does that through all kinds of ways. It, it energizes us physiologically. We get a blast of adrenaline. All these kind of physiological and mental things start to kick off that gets us motivated to a task. We realize I have a task to do. And I, I make an assessment. I have what I need to get to the task. I feel good. I make an assessment. I don't have what I need. And in a perfect world, we realize this is how it is, and I need to rely on my creator to give me what I need to meet the task, right? I need to make an assessment. I don't have what I need, but that's good. That makes me humble, makes me dependent. God gives me this to realize I'm just a created being who's limited, and it's okay that I don't have what I need to meet the task. That's in a perfect world how anxiety functions. I had a professor once who said this, anxiety, it's a great one, anxiety is the price humanity pays for being a racehorse and not a cow. I like that. Anxiety is the price we pay for being a racehorse and not a cow. You guys know what a racehorse and a cow look like, right? I was expecting a better response because when I heard that, I thought, oh, that makes so much sense. We don't want to be cows. Nobody pays money to see cows race around a track for a reason, right? That one doesn't work. Professor of psychiatry John Buckman once said, you have to have a certain amount of anxiety or else you would just slide right out of your chair. <laughs> anxiety is the emotion that God has given us that energizes us, that keeps us a little bit on task. That we make assessments about what I have to face and do I have the resources to face it? And what do I need to do to meet the task? That emotion is working within us. Now, let's look at some examples from the Bible. Because this is important. Because I think when we think about anxiety, we have basically like two places to go in the Bible. When Paul says, don't be anxious, true, but not helpful just to say that, or some other passage of Scripture. But anxiety is everywhere in Scripture if you know how to look, and typically that word doesn't show up. So we can't look at all the passages, but I want to talk briefly, for example, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. If you know the narrative, can you imagine the anxiety that Hannah felt, a barren woman, on top of being barren and unable to produce children, the constant taunting she got from uh, Elkanah's other wife, Paniah. 
She's driven to prayer in these chapters. We just get a glimpse. She's driven to prayer and dependence upon God, crying out, so much so that Eli calls us and says she's drunk on wine. But yet she's moved to God in prayer through her anxious situation. Another one's Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. I could not, as a, as, as a leader, imagine a more anxious situation. 2 Kings 19, if you're familiar with the narrative, he receives a letter from the Assyrian king Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and, and basically the letter says, we're going to wipe you out. And he brings the letter before the altar of the Lord and lays it on the table in heartfelt dependence upon God as their sole deliverer. He can no longer count on his military might. He can no longer count on his tactics. He has no hope. And in that anxiety, he comes before the Lord and says, you are my true hope. We'll unpack this in a little bit. Let's continue on. Another example is from Luke 18. The tax collector, it's just a small narrative. But this tax collector, in comparison, Jesus is using it as in comparison to the Pharisee. It says in Luke 18, he would not even raise his eyes to the heavens. And the scripture also says, but this man went away justified. He was anxious for his own sinfulness. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 is another example, if you know the narrative. He's this blind guy, and, and, and he just knows that he, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is around, and this is his one shot. He has got to be able to connect with him, and he stumbles through the crowd, and the crowd's treating him harshly, telling him to shut up, but he keeps crying out because he's anxious, because he's blind, and he's, this is his only hope to be different, and he cries out to God. Last example, Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 26. I cannot imagine a more anxious situation. Overwhelmed. If you know the passage, you can read it in the four Gospels. He never says, I'm anxious, Lord, but everything about the narrative cries out that he was overwhelmed, and yet he leaned into God. So here's why I show you these passages. In every situation, in every case, all these are very different, aren't they? Infertility. A hopeless situation, personal guilt and shame, physical disability and death. And in every situation, God was trusted as greater than the circumstances. Let me put it another way. God was valued as a greater treasure than the thing that was threatened in their lives. God was valued as greater than the very thing that was threatened in their lives that caused the anxiety to begin with. For example, Hannah as important as it was to have a child, and particularly in that culture, an heir for Elkanah, her husband, it was more important to Hannah that God's will would prevail, even if it meant the death of her dream. Hezekiah, to be the king, the uh, ruler of the people that were all going to be decimated, man, woman, and child, and yet Hezekiah's claim was not to save Israel for their own sake, but so that the world would know there is a God in Israel and all the nations would acknowledge him. The tax collector, all his money, all his wealth, all his power meant nothing in light of his sin and his guilt and his shame before God. And he knew the he had offended holiness itself and that's what mattered. It needed to be made right. Finally, Jesus. I, actually, I skipped over Bartimaeus because on second thought, 
he actually didn't treasure God more than being able to see, right? I mean, he just was like, it was all about, I want to see. If you read the narrative, there was this like raw, I want this. But I even think that's pretty good. Because God, even though this man had a mixed motive, as we often will, God's compassion and mercy was displayed. Jesus, finally example, the only innocent, the only human who shouldn't die at all will die for all, and it will be a horrible death. And yet, fulfilling the, God, the Father's plan of the redemption of you and I was worth more than his life. His Father's plan was his true treasure. So hear me, let me give you a pull quote here. Right? A pull quote is, if you hear nothing else, hear this. If what you value, if what you most value in life can be taken away or destroyed, so you take a moment, think about what that is. If what you most value in life can be taken away or destroyed, you've set yourself up for anxiety. I'm not pretty radical. But isn't that, isn't that exactly what the New Testament, what the teaching of Scripture is trying to communicate to us? If the thing you value most can be taken from you, you are set up for an anxious life. Whether that thing be money or health, a particular relationship, the dream of marriage, successful kids, being good in sports or business, or even, even if everything is good right now, everything's going your way, you are still building your life on sand because your treasure is vulnerable. Because if that's your ultimate value, it can go away. You've set yourself up for anxiety. This is exactly Jesus' point, by the way, in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. You can't get into the whole text, but write that down, read it. Jesus is talking about all the things of this world that can bring us anxiety and worry. And Jesus says to them, look, your father knows you need these things, and your father, implied, is sovereign and in control, and he's good. You're not on your own. And then he says, seek ye first the kingdom, because your father knows you have all these things. In Ed's book, he has this great quote, one of the strategies for dealing with anxiety is to be overtaken by something more important than the object of your anxieties. That's brilliant. One of the strategies of dealing with anxiety is to be overtaken by something more important than the object of your anxieties. So, so let me sum this up, because I know we're talking about a lot of concepts here. Anxiety is a good thing built within us by our creation. It is an emotion God gives to us. Keeps us going, keeps us alert, makes us aware of our neediness. We're always assessing our situations because of this anxiety, wondering if we have the resources to meet it. But because of sin, because of the fall, because of unbelief, anxiety often goes way wrong all the time. And that, that vigilance, that alertness, that, that making an assessment never stops. And it goes into overdrive. But here's the good news. Like anger... Like we talked about last week, like anger, anxiety actually can be a key to your spiritual growth as well. And to this, even the secular literature is hinting at it, even though they may not have the right answer. This is what Rollo May says in his book. Anxiety can have the prognostic value of a fever. It is a sign of struggle going on within the personality itself. Let me unpack what he's saying here, because he's... he's Number one, I don't agree with a lot of what he says. He's not a believer, but he is pretty brilliant on a lot of things. What May is saying is the feelings that we associate with anxiety 
are actual indicators that something is not in sync within you. Okay? Now, the secular literature, may include it, would say that anxiety is the feelings of emotional disconnect between your authentic self and your actual self. In other words, the feelings of anxiety is this emotional psychological disconnect between what you actually are to what you're supposed to be. And to the level of disengagement, you are feeling this anxiety. But here's the problem. I think he's making a right diagnosis. The core of it, I think he's right. Here's where it goes sideways. And depending on, it doesn't matter what secular literature you read, the problem is what we are supposed to be is up for grabs. Everyone has to decide for themselves. And if you look around at our culture, we're like in a cultural train wreck because of it. The narrative goes something like this. My authentic self should be happy. Not in a marriage of 20 plus years that I don't want anymore because I'm not happy and all this anxiety is telling me to be free. My authentic self is to be a man, although I'm biologically a woman, and my anxiety is telling me to make the switch to be free. My authentic self is to be a free spirit and not burdened down with all the responsibilities. So my anxiety is telling me to break ties, travel the world, and have no responsibility to anyone or anything. On and on and on it goes. But friends, the Christian worldview provides not only a vision, but an example of human flourishing in Christ. So while May and other writers in this world, uh, other psychologists like Irvin Yalom, James Bugenthal, Gordon Alport, whoever you read on this, they're actually right. But because they reject a, a view of human flourishing, of what human beings ought to be, all they're left with is, well, whatever you think your authentic self is, maybe it's a toaster or another gender or to break ties with your family responsibilities or whatever it might be, then do it. But the Christian worldview offers something objective and solid. And so here's where it comes into play. In essence, friends. Now remember, there's a whole level of free-floating panic order disorders, all these. That, that, but at their core, this is what I want you to get. A major aspect of our anxiety is the disconnect that we experience between what we actually are in any given situation, circumstance, or relationship, and what we're supposed to be in Christ. So I think May and, and Bugenthal, all those guys are right. But they have no idea what the objective human picture ought to be. And so anxiety at its core engine is the feelings and emotions we experience, the disconnect between any situation or circumstance that's causing anxiety and what we're supposed to be in Christ. Now, consciously, we're not saying that at all, right? That, that is not happening at a conscious level. But if you trace your anxiety back, like we talked about tracing your anger back into your heart, where in these situations you know, okay, this is where I probably should be bearing fruit of the Spirit. You're actually bearing works of the flesh. That's what's happening. And the longer this disconnect has existed, the more intense the disconnect, and the more this disconnect happens in every area of your life, the greater, the more intense the anxiety tends to be, right? Making sense. You have one of two choices at that point. 
You can either work on the disconnect between what you are and what you should be in the new man or new woman in Christ. You can either work on that disconnect through repentance and faith or just focus on the relief of the anxiety. And this is something that's really important in our culture when it comes to anxiety. Most people miss this. If we feel anxiety is merely something to get past, we may only attempt to seek relief of the anxiety and not the actual issues that give rise to the anxiety itself. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, anxiety, and this has happened across all of the mental health uh, conversations we've had in the last 25 years, anxiety has taken on the power of, of, of explanation. Let me explain what I mean by that. How many times have you heard someone, you, imagine this conversation, well, what's wrong with, with, uh, with Rick? Oh, Rick's, he's just got anxiety. Oh, okay, okay. Anxiety is not explanatory of the problem. The anxiety is a symptom of the problem, but it's taken on explanatory power, right? What's wrong with Bob? Oh, he's got anxiety. Oh, I, got, I had that too once. Woo, it was tough, but I got through it. No. Anxiety is not the problem itself. It is the disconnect between what, you're, what you are and what you ought to be. And that emotional disconnect is coming out as anxiety in many ways. Remember, anxiety is telling you something's out of control. You don't have the resources. What will you do about it? You go into overdrive, try to figure it out? Burn the midnight oil, replay the 10,000 scenarios in your mind of how are you going to do this if this happens or do this or this happens and stay up all night? Avoid any and all situations that might force you to confront the, 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 the disconnect, which leads actually into next week's topic of escapism, right? So being an anxious escaper is not a good combination, but that's what often happens. Or will you know the Lord? And I don't just mean that in, in chintzy Christianese. Because to know the Lord means to trust the Lord. To trust the Lord means to obey Him. And, and there's a song that we used to sing a lot, Trust and Obey. You guys remember that song? And if you're a younger Christian, you may not like it because maybe that's kind of chintzy, cheesy sounding. But it's, it's phenomenal. It comes from uh, D.L. Moody, who was a preacher, and a young man testified. He, got, he became a convert of Christ at a D.L. Moody revival. And he said... My past is loss, my present is confusion, and my future is uncertain. And I don't know what Jesus can do, but I am going to trust, and I am going to obey. Uh, I think it was Ira Stanky, which was Moody's songwriter, heard that, wrote it down, and then either he wrote the hymn or a friend of his wrote the hymn. What I love about that is notice the, as we're talking about emotions, there was a trust, an internal sense of subjective what he's going to do, and an external action based upon the internal sense. That's the cognitive view. I don't know. My past is my past is lost. My present is confusion. My future is uncertain. But I'm going to trust internal subjective sense of self. This is where I'm going to put it all in. And I'm going to obey. I'm going to live out of that. So what will we do about our anxiety? Last question. I've got to end it here. We're running out of time. What can we do about it? So I want to end in a little bit of a switch here by giving you some three practical keys uh, based upon this great book. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but good wisdom come is good wisdom. It's called Coping with Anxiety, 10 Simple Steps to Relieve 
uh, Anxiety, Fear, and Worry, uh, written by Dr. Byrne and a co-author, Garano. They, they, it's, it's a really great book. It's a short read, um, typically because when you're anxious, you don't have, want to sit there and read. So it's a short read. They know their audience. But they say, here are three things, and we've touched on these in some ways. They say these are the causes of, of the anxiety epidemic in our culture, right? The, the, the modern pace of, the pace of modern life. Um, we didn't talk about that too much, but specifically two and three, the loss and sense of community and deep connectedness, the emergence of moral relativism. This is what I was talking about, about we have no sense of what actually should be human flourishing. So based on their books, so if you're one of those who wants to read it, based on their book and what I've been talking about, what scripture says, let me just give three encouragements about how to deal with anxiety if you're dealing with it right now. Number one, uh, it's in the terms of thinking. If you can switch your thinking on anxiety as not merely something to get relief over, but respond to, and, and remember that anxiety is like is an emotional check engine light on your dashboard, that's going to help you out a lot. Because we tend to be pretty anxious. And rather than just saying, I got to get over the anxiety, you go, wait a minute, no, 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 no. This is my emotional check engine light going off right now. Where is this? What's happening here? Where's the disconnect? That can help put you in a whole different frame of mind as opposed to, I just got to get relief from the anxiety. No, I want to respond to this. What's going on? God in his grace is allowing me to realize there's a disconnect, yeah? So change your thinking on anxiety entirely. Number two, growing. Take your faith seriously. And what I mean by that, three things, all based on, on what comes from this book, where they're talking about the loss of community. Cultivate your inner life, man. Stop doom scrolling through your social media feeds. Maybe if you're too old for that, stop watching Fox or CNN or News Smart or Newsmax. I don't know. Whatever these things are, people are watching it 24-7. Are you wondered why you're all anxious? Stop. Simple as that. I mean, no joke. You want me to be practical. I guarantee you, if you stop social media, like, I'm not saying it's bad, but, you know, the doom scrolling and watching the news perpetually in one month, you come back to me and you tell me if your anxiety level has not plummeted a lot, right? So cultivate, by the way, that's the, the, the negative. Stop that. The positive is, man, get the spiritual disciplines of meditation, reading the word, being quiet, cultivate an inner life is what I mean. Connect with the church. Garano and Bourne say that that's what's lacking. Right here, guys, connect. Do you have two or three good relationships in this church? If not, connect, get those, and then grow your convictions. So what I mean by that is, friends, the, the Christian life is the fertile soil of Bourne and Garano's uh, discoveries, whether they know it or not. We have everything we need in the church. We have the resources for a healthy, well-rounded inner life like no other segment of society, the spiritual disciplines, the Word of God, the people of God, worship, all those things. We have the fellowship context or the kind of deep connections we all need and yearn. And we have the intellectual framework to make sense of the world. All these things quell, crush anxiety. And then third, so thinking, growing, finally stewarding. What I mean by that Oh, sorry, I didn't put the second one up there. And then the, 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 the third one is stewarding. This may seem like this should not belong in a sermon, but it's true. Every time I do extended counseling, I ask people the same three questions. What's your diet like? What are your, what's your sleep patterns? And are you exercising? 
And every time people tell me these three are horrible, <laughs> yet they want counsel because they're all stressed out, they're anxious, they're depressed, whatever it might be. Guys, we're embodied souls. These bodies matter. They function a certain way. You can't ignore these realities. Do you know the average American, so the average person in here, consumes 120 pounds of sugar every year? What do you think that does to our bodies? <laughs> Friends, sugar, caffeine, lack of exercise, and, and not a good sleep structure are the four horsemen of the anxiety apocalypse, right? That's just the reality. So, so let me read something to you if, you if you have anxiety issues, and you tell me if this sounds familiar. Palpitations, nervousness, trembling, irritability, lightheadedness, feelings of weakness or unsteadiness. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a panic attack I get all the time. Friends, that's hypoglycemia. You know what that is, right? When your blood sugar and insulin levels are going crazy because you're living off high fructose corn syrup and coffee? Yeah, you're anxious. Yeah, you're on edge. Yeah, you're hyper alert because you've got caffeine and sugar just jolting through you. This is not wrong. I'm not trying to make fun of it. But I'm saying, as a Christian, we are embodied souls, and our bodies matter. You shouldn't worry about why you're anxious if you're not even sleeping right, well, regulating that, exercising in some way, and eating correctly. These things matter. Friends, God calls us not simply to renew our minds and cultivate our faith, but steward our bodies so that we can serve Him well. Anxiety has a creational aspect that's good for us. It, 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 watching the Acts 3 man show on Friday night was great. Paul was anxious, right? <laughs> it was great, but he was anxious for the right things. He was alert and vigilant and bringing all his resources to bear. But because of the fall, our sin, our unbelief, our anxiety goes sideways. And all that energy, all that good assessment, all that good stuff just gets consumed on us and drives us into the ground. And we live like functional atheists. Next week, we're going to talk a little about when anxiety or anger get the best of us. When we just say, hey, man, there's this, this world is wrong. This world is out of control. I need an escape. I need out. That's what we talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, would you just forgive us of our anxiousness for all the wrong things? Holy Spirit, would you be so kind? Because apart from your work in our hearts, we do not value and we will not treasure you. We will value the things of this world that can be easily taken away where moth and rust come in and we lose them and we're consumed with our anxieties. Help us to repent well. Help us to embrace how anxiety is a good gift because it keeps us energized, Lord, and, but we want to be anxious about the right things. I think of Paul saying that his, 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 he's anxious for the church. He's anxious for their holiness. Just as I'm sure for Ron and Candy, there's some anxiety there, but there's an anxiety for the work you will do in Southeast Asia. Lord, we don't want to get rid of anxiety. We want to redeem our anxiety because you gave it to us so that we might make assessments and find we are needy. You made us that way, and we lean into you a God who is sovereign and in control, and a God that is good. 
And thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.